Welcome to another episode of Capital Spotlight. Today we have Michael Atkins from Cormorant Capital. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Rob. Uh, glad to be here. Absolutely. Appreciate it. So to start off, just give us a little background on Cormorant, what you guys do in the commercial real estate space. Yeah. So um, we look for middle market value add and opportunistic uh, deals, um, sponsors that need equity. Um, and, you know, we look to help them uh, grow their businesses by providing that equity uh, from the range of, of capital sources, family office uh, funds, private equity, sovereign wealth funds, you know, sort of the spectrum of, of capital out there. Uh, and we also advise CrowdStreet, which is another uh, big player in the, uh, in the capital raising space these days, the online capital formation space. So that's been a great partnership. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's the opportunities we, we sort of saw were, were very interesting in the middle market space, and that's why we pursued it. Very interesting. Yeah, some interesting stuff there, especially about uh, CrowdStreet. So we'll, we'll dive into that in a sec. But before, I wanted to just let everybody get a better understanding. Um, what type of deal size, check size do you guys specialize in? Because you, you, ne- you mentioned family office. You also mentioned sovereign wealth funds. So it sounds like you guys would go from a pretty small potentially to very large check. Yeah. So in terms of raising outside equity, um, it's typically, I would say 2 million to 20 million is a good sweet spot. Um, and we've also invested in syndicated deals at the GP level, um, that, that are below 2 million. So, uh, you know, we like to look for opportunities that are interesting essentially. And if, if, uh, if the check size is, is too large, then we'll bring in, um, you know, another group that can, that can help fill that out. Uh, but fundamentally we look for deals that we get excited about and that we want to be in ourselves. Yeah. So let's talk about that more because that is unique in terms of being an advisory as well as a principal investor. So talk about how, what your approach looks like in terms of when it's the right time to invest, you know, Cormorant's capital or when it's, you know, just an advisor deal and how you align interests and, and make it, you know, successful for everybody. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, first of all, we look at every deal, not just from what, you know, what amount of, of capital is needed, but what, what are the right alignments? Um, we like to bring in partners that, that fulfill uh, really the multiple goals of, of the, the sponsor, uh, you know, not just writing a check, but also in terms of structure, in terms of, you know, what makes sense uh, in terms of the, the philosophy on business plan and exit. Um, and, and also what kind of programmatic potential is there? So, you know, for, for us, um, you know, I'd say anything up to a million, we're, we're, we're happy to, to look at uh, participating, you know, uh, I guess on the, on the investment side. Um, and anything above that, um, you know, we'll bring in additional parties to, to, uh, to help fill that out, um, you know, depending on what's needed and, and what the best, uh, you know, set of alignments are, are you know, are in place. Got it. So it sounds like an ideal deal, assuming it checks all your boxes might look like a sponsor who's going after a pretty large size deal and in need of both LP and GP capital, you can arrange the LP and then come in on the GP side alongside the sponsor to help fulfill that requirement and, uh, and hopefully pick up some more favorable economics for yourself as well. Right. And, um, you know, what I would say with that is we're, we're less focused on maximizing economics on a deal by deal basis and, and really more focused on maximizing the relationship. Uh, that's really critical to us. 
you know, commercial real estate business, as much as we all use, you know, um, various tech uh, types of platforms at the end of the day, uh, the, the best things get done based on relationship. And we're very focused on, you know, on that piece of it. Definitely makes sense. So, so let's talk specifically then what would it look like economically? You know, are you going to do a, a discounted fee structure to arrange the LP in exchange for coming in on the GP or are you just going to pick up, you know, some promote? We're not really, I would say fee um, focused. We're motivated by, you know, aligning our interests as well with, with the sponsors. So we, you know, really look to, uh, you know, come in for sweat equity and, and alongside writing a check as well um, with the sponsor. Um, you know, that's to us the best structure. Uh, it's also optimal when we're approaching investors because, you know, they know that we're not doing this just for fees. We're doing this in order to get investment exposure for ourselves. And so it also aligns our interests with the investors that we're bringing in. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful component. I mean, it makes your job on the advisory side a whole lot easier. Absolutely. So let's go back to that when you mentioned about CrowdStreet. You know, share what you can about how you're, you know, acting as an advisor or, or being value added to to their pursuit of you know online capital formation. Sure. So the interesting thing about CrowdStreet is, um, you know, this company got uh, sort of. Um, up and running around six years ago. Um, and it was really around the same time when you saw an explosion in the number of these companies. I think there was probably 150 or 200 focused on the real estate space, um, you know, in the early days. And every time we saw a new firm get launched, wanted to give them a call and find out what they're doing. It, it was very interesting. I think it was a mix of kind of seeing where the opportunities were and really just, you know, FOMO. Um, you know, we don't raise equity from, you know, high net worth or accredited investors. Um, that's really not our business. And so this, this was kind of an avenue to, um, you know, achieve the economics and, and structure, you know, um, advantages that you have with high net worth individuals um, in a more systematic and, and institutional um, sort of way. And so we would call up a lot of these groups and sort of say, hey, what's your business? What do you guys do? This is interesting to us. How can we work together? Um, and so I got introduced to the founder of CrowdStreet, Aaron Powderly, um, at an Urban Lands Institute event um, a few years ago when he was just getting started. It was basically, uh, you know, Darren and his, and his laptop. And, um, you know, we really saw eye to eye on the opportunity in the middle market space, you know, all these great sponsors out there um, who are sourcing deals that, you know, really were, um, you know, interesting to high net worth in, in investors. In a lot of cases, they already had a set of high net worth investors that they were syndicating um, deals to, but wanted to grow that. Um, and so CrowdStreet kind of grew along, alongside these groups and has, has since, um, you know, raised pretty substantial amounts of, of capital, um, you know, uh, even recently, um, you know, and, and, and has very impressively built their business. It's run by, by great people. It's been, you know, very, uh, you know, it's been a very um, um, stable and, and, and really um, they, they focus on learning and improving the process along the way. So, um, I have a lot of respect for them as a company and they've, they've, they've grown very well and, and brought on some good partners uh, at the company level. 
Um, and it's exciting to uh, sort of see them navigate these choppy waters and do such a tremendous job. And, and so I'm excited about where, you know, that business will be, um, you know, in the future. Yeah, it's definitely been a big growing opportunity in terms of the accredited investor space and ways that that can help, you know, fill out the capital stack and, and make deals work, um, which otherwise, you know, would be either overlooked or just not being able to get done. So definitely an important part of the space. Uh, jumping around a bit, just going back to uh, Cormorant's principal investing, you know, where does that balance sheet come from? Is that being sourced from, you know, a close group of private investors or is that, you know, potentially maybe eventually you guys will create a syndication business and, you know, create a, a syndicated pool of equity to put out that capital? I, I, you know, I thought about that. I don't think at this point that's, that's really the goal. You know, it's internal capital that, that, um, you know, we have the luxury of really just doing deals, looking at deals on a deal by deal basis, uh, you know, and choosing, choosing what we want to work on. Um, you know, it, it, um, I don't think it in itself, it will become an investment business. Um, you know, I think we'll maintain the advisory, um, sort of component. Um, you know, it just, it just works so well. Um, it's not to say we don't look for ways to grow and ways to evolve, but, you know, over the past few years, uh, you know, that's been defined more in terms of sponsor selection and, and understanding deals and, and really just getting better and better at, um, you know, formulating the best structures for groups in the most efficient way possible. And, and you know, really the, at the end of the day, it's, it's building that expertise that, you know, is our differentiator, just in the same way we, you know, tell our sponsors time time and time again that, um, you know, the, the geographic or product specificity um, that they build within their platform is, is, a, is a major differentiator in the market, and that's what investors look for. Um, so, you know, it, for us being good at that narrow piece um, of the business, getting better at it, you know, has served as well. Yeah, it's so true about, you know, the first thing a potential investor is going to ask is, you know, if you're bringing them a deal, they'll say, well, do you already own and operate in this market? You know, what is your expertise? Because they want to lean on a local expert, uh, you know, rather than take a flyer in a new market with a new operator for sure. Yeah, you got it. I mean, think about it, you know, 40 years ago, you know, somebody said, Hey, you know, there's going to be a multi-billion dollar, in many cases, many multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies that rent storage space, you know, you'd be like, what are you talking about? You're, you're a lunatic. Um, but that's what we have today. You know, the real estate has become a business of specialization, you know, and over time, you know, that specialization, it's both geographic and, and product specific. And I think that's really the philosophy that underpins how we look at things. In other words, you know, what is it that our sponsor knows you know geographically or, or product wise that gives them an advantage to spot inefficiencies in the market um, whether you know whether it's in the current you know sort of rental income or if the property is not highest and best use you know or if there's some other strategy that can be undertaken add value asset level um, so you can generate a return without having to make a bunch of market or macro assumptions that that's that's critical these days because anybody can go on 
a broker website and buy a deal, but understanding how to monetize it in a way that is superior, you know, to the other guys out there, uh, that's the special sauce. Absolutely. So staying on this topic, you know, let's go more into advice to operators looking to position themselves to improve their ability to attract capital. So as far as we already talked about specificity and location and, and uh, strategy asset class, you know, what are some other things that operators can do to, uh, you know, to maximize that? So, you know, real estate is a very legacy kind of business. Um, so I think, you know, if you, if you're building a business, um, you know, and your business is probably a good example of that uh, based on the vintage. If you're building a business that isn't encumbered by old processes and, and isn't encumbered by the offline old way of doing things, if you can, you know, step out there and embrace, you know, tech enabled um, ways of doing business, um, and really with a lot of off the shelf kind of technology um, and just be smarter about how to use it. You know, that, that's something that, that, distinguishes a lot of groups that we see out there. Um, if you can combine that with, you know, tying that back into just old fashioned geographic or product knowledge, you know, those things I think in itself are, are you know, already gonna put you head and shoulders above, above the competition. Um, especially if you can, um, you know, especially if you can source the deal um, in an interesting way as well, you know. Right. Unique sourcing, I'd, I'd say, is probably one of the harder ways to differentiate yourself just because so many deals are on the market and, and even deals that are off market are still being, to some extent, shopped. So really creating a differentiated deal flow, I think, is potentially one of the most challenging but re most rewarding uh, way to you know, create alpha or outsized value. Yeah, 100%. You know, we really view it as an important leg in a three-legged stool, which is you know, a, a quasi or, or proprietary way of deal sourcing, um, you know, a skill set that is that, that in itself is, is created a barrier because it, it, there's unique ways that it could be used to monetize, you know, assets and access to capital. And so you have any two of those legs, the third leg, you know, um, follows. And, and that's, that's another kind of underlying, you know, philosophical approach that we take to our business and how we look at, you know, again, creating the best alignments between sponsors, the right sponsors and, and equity. Yeah. Yeah. So you said some good things there for sure. One thing that is certainly a recurring theme and for good reason is the idea of value creation and that people don't want to invest in, you know, a market rate transaction and, you know, not get some sort of above and beyond value creation. So the, my question is, you know, what's your experience and, and how do you solve for uh, core and core plus capital? You know, how do you attract capital to, you know, really deals that don't have some sort of lift or compelling business plan to it? And it's more so just a, hey, we like the market, we like the asset and we, we're gonna, you know, we're comfortable with the level of coupon. Uh, you know, how, how do you attract that capital? I think you got to find a way to differentiate. So, you know, if, you know, you're looking at a core plus deal, there has to be something that institutional capital, there has to be a reason why institutional capital is not chasing it. Maybe it's um, not a core plus location. And you know, the very definition of core plus location could be changing, you know, certainly in the short term, maybe, you know, maybe permanently. 
um, given everything that's going on in the market. So um, there has to be something that is, you know, um, not traditional or conventional in the core plus sense. Maybe it's the size of the deal. Um, something that gives a smaller operator advantage, you know, maybe a smaller deal over the larger institutional capital, which has access to lower cost of capital. So, you know, if you are, you know, buying maybe a new build asset that's not in a, you know, traditional core location, and you have high net worth investors who don't otherwise have access to, to real estate investment, and they want something that is, um, you know, feasible for them in terms of check size, but uh, safe in terms of strategy and, and you know minim minimization of, for example, uh, capital expenditures in the, in the near term. Um, you know that's that's probably one way to approach it. And that's you know guys are doing that. They're definitely rotating into higher you know higher quality assets like that that may not have been defined as core previously either because of the size or or location. Right. So still trying to achieve higher returns. On the, in the fringe of the core core plus with either being in, you know, smaller markets or smaller assets or something like that. Yeah. Or just, just making sure that, you know, what you're paying, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we all pay uh, for, for, you know, the value is a function of what we pay for, for yield, you know, and, you know, that's how we figure out what, what to pay for something. And so if you have a high degree of comfort that that yield is stable and the investors, you know, want to achieve stability, um, you know, in their income stream rather than, you know, a lot of upside, you know, that has a value as well. That has an investment value to your investors. Um, so, you know, it's all about also the investors that you do have access to, you know, how do they, you know, how do they perceive value and, and how do you um, lead them to that perception and value? In a lot of ways, they're looking to us, you know, if they're not real estate investors, they're looking to us in the real estate world to, to help guide them to, you know, what, what is good value in real estate in terms of what they're trying to, you know, what they're trying to achieve with their investment objectives. Yeah. So, you know, we'll stick to one more question on the core plus, which is just what would, you know, uh, a deal, if I brought you a deal, what would it be, what would it look like for it to really make sense? as a core plus deal, you know, what's the yield level kind of general characteristics about the location, the asset type, I know, I know, especially on the core plus side, investors are very vintage conscious, right? And they, they don't really love even a 1980s deal. If it's a core plus strategy value add, they can get comfortable with, you know, seventies, eighties, but core plus things get more particular. So what does that look like? Yeah, it's interesting on the vintage. Absolutely, investors and lenders are looking to rotate out of older vintage into newer vintage. And, and you know, I was listening to Mohammed El Larian on, on Bloomberg the other day, and he was sort of pushing the same thing, you know, rotate into to higher value assets. And, and you see it in the real estate world as well. So I think, you know, one way that, that people are looking at, at doing that, um, you know, we have a lot of newer build construction um, where, um, the sponsorship that, or the developer, you know, may have, have spent too much to build the building relative to the um, whatever yield it can achieve in the short term. You know, some developers and their investors have the ability to, to hold out, others don't. So one way to think about, you know, um, getting access to core quality assets um, is to recap, um, you know, new build deals where the lease up, you know, has been, has been slower and it's creating a drag on the equity and debt um, capital stack. And so 
um, you know, you could get creative with recapping the deal with new equity, with preferred equity, um, you know, or, or just buying it at a discount to, to uh, stabilize yield and sort of taking that lease up risk and making a bet on how long it'll take you to lease it up and what rates you can do that. You know, I, I don't think anyone is underwriting a lot of rent growth anywhere at this point, at least at the macro level. And so, um, you know, so those, those underwriting assumptions will undoubtedly cause some, you know, significant headwinds with, with investors or with existing developers and their deals. We just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the spaces that has me very excited, which are the, you know, new construction deals that are in lease up and having troubles and potentially liquidity issues. And like you said, might be able to buy it at a discount, take up that, take on that lease up risk. And then eventually you own a stabilized new construction property at a great basis. I think, you know, if we do see something like that widespread, uh, you know, those will be some great opportunities. There's absolutely capital available in looking at, at those kind of strategies when, you know, when and if they arise. And at the end of the day, it, it's a matter of, you know, it's a market. So it's a matter of uh, supply and demand. And, and it, you know, it, it's a question of, you know, how many of those opportunities hit at once, you know, that will determine the, the, the scale and, and sort of breadth of the demand of the, uh, you know, potential to do those deals. Yeah. And that's actually a really good point. I think a lot of people miss that when they talk about distress and opportunistic investments, because if you just have one-off, you know, idiosyncratic uh, examples of a failed lease up, for example, you know, that's going to get gobbled up by the market and someone will pay retail price for that just because there just isn't a widespread opportunity. But if we see, you know, in every pocket failed lease up deals that can be sold at a discount, you know, that, that will result in them being sold at a discount. Right. So I think that supply and demand is, is a big point that not a lot of people talk about because everybody says, Oh, well, you know, the sky is falling and I'm going to be able to buy hotels or, or retail or multifamily at a steep discount. And, you know, that may or may not be true, but I don't think they're factoring in the supply and demand part of that equation. Yeah, the, the, at the end of the day, the Fed could be crowding us all out and be doing those deals. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we've been pretty much seeing so far. And and going back to your point about rent growth, I, so far I've seen, among other things, really stifle transaction volume, right? Since buyers are scared to underwrite rent growth, at least in the near term, sellers are still hanging on to yesterday's pricing, and that's just creating a bid-ask spread that is untenable in most circumstances. 100%. So, so what's happening is, you know, you're also having, you have the additional, you know, market component of the debt guys saying, hey, we want you to uh, put in a little more equity to do this deal and maybe give us a little bit of recourse. Well, that becomes dilutive to the equity returns. And, and you know, unless the cost of equity goes, goes down substantially, then, you know, the, you know, the, the impact um, and the underwriting is, is, is on what people are willing to pay for an asset. Um, and so until now, people have been able to, to get deals done through structure, um, you know, maybe additional escrow um, to essentially act as an insurance policy for the non-payment of rent, um, you know, as, as a, as a uh, you know, alternative to adjusting the, the purchase price. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen. That, that was sort of a, you know, band-aid to get deals done. Um, you know, in the future, it's hard to imagine that not affecting, 
um, the purchase price even in a zero uh, rate environment for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's interesting. The The debt side is certainly moving the market and it, it always has just because people are solving for levered returns. And an interesting point you brought up is, you know, while the cost of debt has gone down, right, we've seen, you know, LIBOR go down to almost zero, 10 year has gone down. So, you know, the cost of debt has gone down, but also if lenders are requiring more equity, that's in the end going to be, as you said, dilutive to the returns, even though the cost of debt's going up just because equity is more expensive. And if more of your capital stacks coming from equity, um, that's obviously going to, to hamper valuation. So I want to ask an interesting question, which I think in terms of, uh, you know, discounted cash flow valuations for, you know, the public markets, for example, it's pretty well understood that there's an ideal mix in terms of debt and equity. And, you know, it's your job to find that ideal mix, which, you know, can have to do with, uh, you know, taxation and it can have to do with the cost of debt, cost of equity and how more leverage you put on and increases the cost of equity. But on the real estate side, most of the time people are just seeking as much leverage as they can get, right? Basically, whatever the lender's willing to underwrite to, that's the, that's the appropriate amount of leverage and that's what they'll take. So from your perspective, do you agree with that? Or is there a more nuanced approach that, that you guys take in terms of evaluating, you know, the pros and cons of, of max leverage essentially? Yeah, I, th I think uh, you're right, you know, in terms of saying it's a very situation specific, um, you know, analysis. It's funny though, you, there, I've had a couple conversations in the last week where the sponsor has been presented with options that, you know, you know, are, are, are too much leverage. You know, it's like uh, the terms are too good, um, you know, and they just don't feel comfortable with the amount of leverage, regardless of the cost um, that's being provided. And so, you know, I think you have to look at what do you, what's your ultimate exit here? Um, you know, if you're being, if it's a refinance and you have signed a new lease um, in an office property, for example, um, you know, what happens when that, when that lease, you know, term, you know, when, when you near the end of the lease term, um, you know, and you've got this, this great debt on the property, is that going to hamper a refinance or, or a sale? Um, I think that's, you know, those are the things to look at, you know, how, not only what are you trying to solve for today, but, um, you know, what's the ultimate strategy with the asset? What's your option, optionality, um, you know, at, at term? And how does that, you know, how is that affected by the debt that you're trying to put on the property? So it's, it's, it's kind of a funny dynamic these days. You've got, you've got debt that's available, um, but, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you as the operator should be better at underwriting uh, the ultimate, you know, um, strategy on the asset. Uh, and, and the debt has to align with that. Absolutely makes sense. And I think a classic example that you were alluding to there was, uh, you know, longer term debt with yield maintenance and how they may, that may affect a, you know, the future desirability of a refinance or a sale. And, uh, you know, that's, kind of cliche at this point, you know, a lot of people talk about it, a lot of people bring it up, but you know, the attractiveness of yield maintenance paper is, you know, often difficult to turn away and, and you, you know, take on those onerous terms in exchange for what could be better leverage, better pricing. So, you know, some things that we have to live with, but I also think, you know, if you are really solving for your exit, you know, you may take a, a better look at, you know, floating rate debt or, or paying up for a declining prepay um, you know, or even if you're really confident in your business plan, a bridge loan. 
Right. On the other hand, you know, banks may end up owning a lot of assets in the next uh, year or so. And, uh, you know, maybe you should take that while you can get it while the lenders are still lenders rather than um, equity owners. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, while, while the uh, capital markets window is open, certainly. Absolutely. So I want to jump over to something that's definitely less talked about, at least, uh, you know, less familiar to me, but not, you know, very interesting nonetheless, which is on the, uh, you know, the corporate level investments as well as M&A. So to start, you know, talk about your experience with, uh, you know, entity level investments in, in real estate companies directly. So it's an interesting um, sort of space to play in. And, you know, whereas the investable universe uh, in value-add real estate is, is practically infinite, um, you know, finding the right entity level investments um, that make sense and that, you know, where the objectives of both parties align, you know, it's, it's a lot more challenging than, than finding, you know, sort of value-add real estate deals. Um, it's just, there's just a lot less. Um, so, you know, I think um, it comes down to a lot of times, you know, um, things that are much more, you know, sort of personal to the ownership of a company. Um, you know, you could have founders who um, have built a great business and um, whose succession plan may not be clear cut, or maybe there is no succession plan. And so, you know, those are oftentimes challenging conversations for, for, for people to come to terms with, you know, with themselves as much as anyone else. Um, so, you know, that's kind of one, you know, one bucket. Um, and, and, and then, you know, valuing the various promotes and, and valuing, what, you know, what would be considered the assets and the fee streams over time um, is, you know, is, is, is in some ways similar, in some ways different than, than looking at, you know, real estate. Um, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, there, there are opportunities where um, providing new capital for a new strategy is a way to grow the business because it creates more vertical integration or, um, you know, sort of synergies among, among uh, you know, uh, among product types, for example, that a company is going after. Maybe there's some, some common denominators that that help on the cost side, that help them produce more on the cost side at less, for example, if they can, you know, source better materials or, or streamline back office, you know, all of those typical kind of M&A things. Um, you know, if you um, can add capital that, that and, and a capital partner, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's not just the capital, it's who's the partner and how can they help grow the business um, strategically? You know, those that's another kind of, um, you know, I would say, um, subset of, of opportunity and that, you know, on, on, you know, for that strategy. So what, what does a real estate company look like? You know, the one that is interested in having some sort of transaction occur at the end of the level, whether they're, I guess, you know, selling promote interests or, or, you know, selling, you know, how does that, you know, why do they want to do that basically? Well, um, the best reason to do it is to, you know, maximize your, you know, your investment and your, your equity, right? Um, from that perspective, from the investor's perspective, the best reason to do that, you know, is, you know, there's a strategic reason to help, you know, grow that further, you know? Um, so that's, that's where the challenge begins in terms of aligning those interests and making sure that, uh, you know, if, if, you know, whatever the, whatever the objectives of the, of the owner are, you know, 
align well with the objectives of the of the investor in order to get to you know a point where um, you know you you've augmented those cash flows you know you want to you want to increase those cash flows and and get rid of inefficiencies in the same way as if you're buying a value add multi deal and you know improving the management structure so you can increase rent collections or um, you know enhance the apartments and therefore enhance the rent you know the rental income um, you know it's the same kind of concept that would be applied to you know an M and A piece which you know um, again there's a lot less of those out there but um, it's the same underlying sort of concept of value that, that drives it. Right. Absolutely. And so you know, in terms of value, what, if I'm an investor looking to, to make one of these investments, am I, am I a financial investor or am I a strategic investor? And, and what are the returns typically that I would be seeking? For, for an M&A type of deal? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, um, opportunistic in terms of how we in the in the real estate investment world look at deals. So you're looking at opportunistic returns. You know, in, in the in the private equity M and A world, that's you know that's 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 what's required. Um, you know, real estate's a lot more boring in a lot of ways to compared to you know these high octane private equity guys. Um, you know, so um, you know it, it really has to you know kind of match that. Um, you know that and that's often the challenge, but um, you know, it could also be that um, a company that's very strong in a certain product or geography wants to grow into another geography and can just do things better and cheaper and has access to, you know, uh, cheaper insurance, for example, or lower cost of debt. So you can come in and immediately with a balance sheet for direct insurer relationships, um, you know, those costs have gotten very expensive, obviously, um, you know, come in and streamline the business and, and you know, um, you know, free whoever is good at what they do in that business to do more of what they're good at. Right. So, so yeah. And then on, on more of the M and a side in terms of operators acquiring management companies, uh, you know, talk about a few past assignments that, you know, would highlight what that, what that looks like and what the benefits are for an operator to go out there and buy a management company. Um, you know, honestly, that, is something that makes a lot of sense, but we haven't necessarily seen a lot of that um, in part because the, the cost to acquire the management company has been really prohibitive. Um, operators have decided that it's cheaper to build than buy. You know, it's the same kind of analysis. You know, you, you look at replacement costs in an asset. Well, what's the replacement cost of building this ourselves? Um, and, and some have even said, you know, our investors don't care about vertical integration. They care about, you know, asset management. That's what they pay us for. So hire the best in class operator uh, or hire the best in class manager, um, that's fine. So um, it's interesting the diversity of opinion within that. And again, ultimately it comes down to very situation specific, uh, you know, type of things. Who's good at what, who's good at what and where? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, my guess is, and from, from what I've seen, it's more common to see, you know, larger scale buyouts of, vertically integrated companies themselves. So an operator would go out there and buy, you know, a shop that already has the ownership of the entity of the properties as well as the management. And then they can go in there and take on and they're coming into an infrastructure, right? So not only are they getting a nice size portfolio of, let's say, you know, a billion, two billion uh, in hopefully a concentrated geography, but they're also assuming an infrastructure of 
of property management that they can hopefully fold into their operations. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. If you're, if your economics in that structure are superior to the, you know, build it yourself, you know, and, and you throw in the, the, you know, the sort of time value of money. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, you just haven't seen, you know, I think what you have guys looking for now are, are management companies that are looking to, to bring on the vendors and become more vertically integrated that way. Uh, we've had a couple of management companies that have approached us for, you know, uh, uh, the purposes of identifying vendors they can buy. So it's also achieving more vertical integration within that piece of the business itself. Very interesting. Yeah. I haven't thought about, haven't thought about that, but I definitely, you know, have thought about the build versus buy in the management space and, you know, for us, we've, we've gone the build it route, which I think, as you said, most people make that decision. You know, they think they have some unique insights that they can then turn into a, uh, you know, a profitable business. Are you finding access to um, personnel, which has been a huge impediment um, any better um, these days in the, in the build it, you know, um, on the build it strategy? You know, it just seems like, um, you know, the, the, the challenge for, for people on that side of the business has been, you know, um, attracting and, re- and retaining talent. 100%. That's, that's certainly, I mean, property management is a people business, you know, all around. And it's definitely the biggest challenge and probably the key to success. And so, you know, we've seen maybe it become a little bit easier with, uh, you know, coronavirus and, you know, we had a a property management position become available and, you know, we were flooded with applications, you know, so there's, you know, opportunity there, but, you know, the, because we recognize this as a challenge, we are taking the angle of uh, virtual assistance. So trying to, you know, create corporate level uh, employees that can then help onsite employees function more productively. And, And we would utilize, you know, out of country virtual assistants to, uh, you know, to really get that job done cost effectively. I mean, I would consider that there's your tech, you know, enabled off the shelf kind of thing you can do and, you know, tweak it for your business and, and, you know, arbitrage. Um, so yeah, that's, that's great. Would you say the applications you got, you know, were higher quality as well as, as, you know, volume, um, you know, on one hand, it's hard to imagine 15% unemployment, property management business, just given challenges attracting talent before, but, um, you know, are you seeing quality as well as quantity there? Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I can say one way or the other. My, my hunch is that we're just seeing more quantity, right? Which in the end will allow you to sift through and find quality, but I, I don't think it's necessarily creating more quality on average. I'll make sure and tell that to the guys you just hired. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, wraps it up for us. You know, again, really appreciate you having a, a great discussion here and go ahead and let listeners know where they can find more about Cormorant Capital and connect with you further. Yeah. Well, let's, um, you know, you can blast out my um, email address and, you know, happy to, happy to follow up with any questions and thanks for the opportunity. Sounds good. Yep. I will uh, put your information in the show notes and thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Rob.